The last movie that I got to see in a movie theater, doesn't it feel like years since you've been to a movie theater? Was called 1917. Some of you might have seen this movie. It was about World War I, and it was very intense. I, it shook me. I left the theater and was like, I can't believe people went through that. I mean, the movie is basically, if you haven't seen it, just a day in the life of a guy during World War I. And he goes to the trenches, he gets shot at, he fights in this battle, and it's just the most stressful movie in the world. But it was really good, and it got me thinking, like, wow, World War I must have been the hardest time ever. And I started to think, you know, it's Hollywood. Maybe they hammed it up a little bit. Maybe World War I wasn't really that bad, and they just, for the movie's sake, you know, they made it more intense than it really was. But I was next watching with my wife, with my wife, Downton Abbey. And uh, some of you have seen Downton Abbey. It's uh, this British show set in the 1910s about this, like, aristocratic British family. And it's all about lace doilies and the ladies wear hats with a feather. And it's just, like, social drama. And in season two, they g it gets to be World War I. And all the men in the show, they go off to fight in World War I. And all of a sudden, this show that's been so tame and just sort of about petty drama turns into this, like, war thing. And these guys are in the trenches. And there's barbed wire and machine guns. And it's cutting back and forth to, like tea and crumpets and World War I, and I was like, whoa, it really was that bad. I mean, some of you have seen other movies like maybe Paths of Glory or All Quiet on the Western Front, and after a while, you realize the theme. Man, World War I was no joke. It was maybe one of the hardest times you could ever have to go through as a human being. All the elements are against you. It's freezing of it. He was shot or wounded at least seven times during World War I, different times. He saw friends die around him. He fought in the trenches hand-to-hand -hand with a bayonet, and he lived to be 102. He just died in 1998. It's an incredible book, and this is what he wrote at the end of the book. This paragraph, I had to stop and set the book down and rethink my entire life, so I wanted to share this with you this morning. He said this, Hardened as scarcely another generation ever was in fire and flame, we could go into life as though from the anvil, into friendship, Love, politics, professions, into all that destiny had in store. It is not every generation that is so favored. And I thought, how in the world could this man, who had seen so much pain and death for years, millions of people wiped out, say it's not every generation that is so favored as mine? You know, we look back at World War I, I look, watch these movies, and I can't imagine what it would be like to be pushed so hard, to stare death in the face, to be stretched so thin. And maybe that's exactly what Ernst Younger means when he says his generation was favored. See, not only can they imagine what that would be like to go through that, they did it. They lived through one of the hardest circumstances a human being has ever been put through, ever. His generation, they had an opportunity like none ever has before, and God willing, none ever will have again. A chance to forge in the hottest fires we've ever seen the trait of resilience. For the next six weeks, we're going to be studying this idea of resilience. We're going to be looking at how we can grow this trait in ourselves in the absence of World War I trenches. How we can grow this trait in our own hearts, in our families, in our church, and how we can model this trait for the world around us who desperately needs to see it in action. We're not talking about fighting and being resilient against a foreign army hand-to-hand -hand in uh, World War I trenches. We're not even talking about being resilient in the face of persecution, which the church at other times in history, they may have needed to hear that message when they were being persecuted or mistreated, or the church today in other parts of the world may need that message. But what we're talking about is not resilience on the Western Front. We're talking about resilience on the College Station Front here at the A&M Church of Christ, not in the 1910s, but in the 2020s. 
not in some physical war, but in our spiritual war. So the first thing we need to know as we embark on this study together, this week we're starting with a fundamental 101 principle of resilience, and that's this. Resilience takes a lifetime. This is what Ernst Younger meant when he said my generation was favored. We had an entire experience to build up this resilience that we could cultivate over our lifetime. Ernest Hemingway said it this way, there are some things which cannot be learned quickly and time, which is all we have, must be paid heavily for their acquiring. And resilience is one of those things. It cannot be learned quickly. A lot of virtues like kindness or courage, that can happen in a heartbeat, one decision, We can practice them every day, just like you practice playing guitar or running for a 5K, but resilience is different. It grows slowly over entire phases of our lives. Resilience grows as pain that you've been through crystallizes into wisdom. Resilience bears fruit sometimes after years or decades of patient endurance through trial in the right direction over and over and over. Resilience takes a lifetime. So, as we dive in, I'll tell you now, there's two big takeaways that I want to talk about today related to this idea. Resilience takes a lifetime. Because we're talking about the entire span of a human life, I have a message this morning for young people. And I have a message this morning for old people. I want to talk to each group in turn. And we're going to discuss what it looks like to grow resilience at the beginning of your life and to use resilience towards the end of your life because resilience is a thing that we spend our entire lives building and growing. For younger people, in in the American spiritual warfare of the 2020s, you need to know this. You are not currently part of a very resilient generation. You're going to have to start building resilience right now. And you're not going to have a lot of help from the culture around you. Now, for the older people engaged in the American spiritual warfare of the 2020s, a lot of you have earned resilience over your entire lifetime through so many trials and difficult things that you have endured. But a lot of older people are not passing this on and helping the younger people, and they need you. They are dying for wisdom from older people who've lived through this. They're not resilient, and they need your help. So those are the two messages that we're going to go through today. And to get there, we're going to be in Numbers chapter 13. If you have your Bible with you here in the auditorium or your phone, go to Numbers 13. We've removed the Bibles from the pews for germ purposes. But y'all at home, watch it on the couch. No excuse. Get your Bible. We're going to Numbers 13. Okay, so in the book of Exodus, the Israelites leave Egypt. They were slaves and God set them free and they start wandering towards the promised land. It's been promised for centuries. And they're going to get there and there's already people living there, and they're going to have to take it over. So in Exodus, they exit Egypt. In Leviticus, they get the law from God. And here in the book of Numbers, finally, they've arrived at the land that God has promised to them. And uh, God says to Moses, let's start reading here in verse 1 of Numbers 13. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So they choose 12 guys, one from each tribe, and they send them out to explore the land. Now skip down to verse 26, and we'll pick up when the guys come back and give their report of the land, okay? Verse 26. The spies came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. So far we've got good news on the report, okay? But then they go on. But the people who live there are powerful. 
and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb, who was one of the spies, silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people, they're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly and said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now remember that. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But God hears them, and this is how he responds. Skip down in chapter 14 if you're following along to verse 26. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hands to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun, the only two spies who gave a good report. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in the wilderness." Now, Joshua and Caleb, they had been pleading with the people, right? There's an argument. There's a back and forth where they say, guys, come on. God will get us through this. We can go. We can take the land. And the rest of the spies turn the entire tribe of Israel against these two faithful spies, Joshua and Caleb. And they say, we won't go. Now, after God makes this threat and says, all right, head back out into the desert. All of you will die. I'll raise up a new generation and we'll try this again. The Israelites say, whoa, wait a minute, God. We'll do it. We weren't weren't serious. We'll do it. And so they get their army together and try to attack the promised land. They just go in without God's blessing. They say, no, 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 God, we hear you, we're going. And they lose. They lose bad. And they realize God is not with them in that fight. So they head out into the desert. And God is always faithful to his word. And what he said is exactly what happens. Over the next 40 years, they wander around in the desert. And all of that generation of Israelites dies. Okay. So what in the world is going on in this story? Doesn't that seem a little harsh to you that God decided to take those extreme measures? Wipe out an entire generation. Wipe the slate clean and start from scratch. Let's look back at chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. Look at what the Israelites said when they got to the promised land. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? They said, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, If you've been paying attention in the story, you know what was waiting for them in Egypt, right? They were slaves in Egypt. They were somebody else's property. They were whipped. They were abused. They were used, and they cried out to God, and he finally freed them. That's the place they're saying that they should go back to, that they're longing and nostalgic for their slavery in Egypt. These people are willing to regress back into a life of slavery rather than go forward with God's plan for their lives. They didn't even try to take the land first. They didn't even see these guys. They just heard a report that the guys were big. And they said, all right, that's it. We're going back to Egypt. There's no way God could get us through that. 
Some of these Israelites who were saying this were still wearing the sandals on their feet that had walked through the dry land when God parted the Red Sea when they left. But if the Amalekites are big and the Jebusites are scary, let's go back to Egypt. There's no way that God could get us through this one. If you've been reading along this story since Exodus, you'll know that this is a theme, right? This reaction is not surprising. Like, let's just press rewind for just a second and take a look at all the foreshadowing that we've seen, okay? In Exodus chapter 14, the Israelites had just got out of slavery. They were standing on the shores of the Red Sea. If you remember the movie, The Prince of Egypt, the DreamWorks movie, they were singing the song, There Can Be Miracles If You Believe, and they get to the Red Sea, and then Pharaoh shows up with his chariots. And what do they say? We should go back to Egypt. Why did God bring us out here? It wasn't good enough to just leave us as slaves. We should go back to Egypt. And God parts the Red Sea, and they walk across it, and they get to the desert on the other side. And what happens in the desert? Exodus 15. They get thirsty, and what do they say? We should go back to Egypt. There's no way we're all going to die because we're thirsty. The God, the God who just did the ten plagues and parted the Red Sea, he couldn't get us water in the desert. We're definitely going to die. And so God brings up water. They drink the water and then they get hungry. And what do they say? We should go back to Egypt. We're going to die. There's no way. And God makes bread fall from heaven and feed them. Okay, see the pattern? And here we are. We're at the promised land. We've arrived. And they hear this report. There's some big bad guys living in the land. And what do they say? Like a broken record every time. We should go back to Egypt. There is no way God can get us through this one. We should go back. Now, when we read about this certain generation, a certain generation who complains nonstop, a certain generation who's known for feeling entitled to life's comforts, a generation that's lazy, insecure, who can't seem to move on from their early years and just grow up and take responsibility, does that call to mind any certain generation, perhaps, that you know of today? It's okay, you can say it. You can say, it's okay, it's okay. Everyone's scared to say it because I'm a millennial. The answer is millennials. You're all thinking about it. It's okay, it's okay. Millennials, right? Millennials have this reputation. I'm 26 years old. I'm a millennial. I'm a member of what is commonly referred to, I hope you've heard this before, I think it's great, of the Peter Pan generation. Have you heard this? The Peter Pan generation? Remember the movie Peter Pan? What did he do? He couldn't grow up, Right? He wanted to go to Neverland, and that's the special thing about Neverland, is you don't have to grow up. But remember what the people who lived in Neverland, the kids that lived there were called? The Lost Boys. Look at these lyrics from this song from Disney's Peter Pan, all right? This song is sort of the anthem of the entire millennial generation, all right? There's a Neverland waiting for you where all your happy dreams come true. Every dream that you dream will come true. When there's a smile in your heart, there's no better time to start. Think of all the joy you'll find when you leave the world behind and bid your cares goodbye. You can fly, you can fly, you can fly. So this is kind of this is kind of what we've been what we've been raised on. Some of the millennials are nodding along, like, yeah, I was told that my whole life too. I understand. Um, and now let's fast forward a little bit. Let's take a look at the millennials in adulthood and let's see how that's kind of played out. What I did is I went through some uh, news headlines from the last five years and I just clipped a few for us to take a look at. I'm not going to read all of them, you can, uh, but just take a look at some of these. <laughs> How millennials killed mayonnaise. Millennials say the American dream is dead. They killed it. I'm sorry, on behalf of millennials for killing the American dream. Millennials are killing also chains like Buffalo Wild Wings and Applebee's. I'm sorry for Applebee's too. Millennials are killing America, part one. That was a multi-part series on how millennials are killing America. Millennials, and this is unforgivable, have killed the McDonald's McRap. Millennials killed napkins, but they're resuscitating prenups. 
That's a good one. It at least has a sort of positive spin on it. How millennials are ruining the workforce. We could go on and on and on. I had so many headlines just like this that are talking about the negative effect it's having as millennials sort of grow up and we do this baton pass from generation to generation for millennials to take the reins. And some of the adults, when I even say that, are shuddering like, whoa, whoa, hang on a second. Slow down. We don't have a positive reputation as a generation. What happened to the millennials? This generation was raised in the most prosperous era of human history, right? They're more depressed, they're more anxious, suicidal, lonely than ever before. I mean, you can look up statistics on this, but what happened to the millennials? You know, if you ask Ernst Younger, the World War I guy, the Rambo we were talking about earlier, he would probably say that the millennial generation just wasn't as lucky as his generation. He would say the millennials were raised in a time of peace and comfort and prosperity. They've never been challenged. They don't know how to work hard or fight. And he's probably right about that, but I think it's a little more complex than that too. See, when millennials have to grow up, they have to move out, they have to get a job, get a haircut, pay taxes, tuck in their shirt, show up on time, you know, the struggle, the grind, they end up feeling a lot like the Israelites, like the Israelites felt when they hit their first obstacles outside of Egypt, right? Like a toddler who's learning how to walk for the first time will trip over the smallest bump in the road. They see the Red Sea, whoa, let's head back to Egypt. They get thirsty, they get bored, whoa, let's head back to Egypt, right? They get to the promised land and there's big bad Canaanites there, whoa, let's head back to Egypt. There's no way we can do this. Why do we ever leave in the first place? Here's the problem. You can take the Israelites out of Egypt, but you cannot take Egypt out of the Israelites. This generation was born into slavery. They were raised as slaves. When God set them free, they walked out of Egypt and their bodies were physically free, but their hearts were dragging along those slave chains with them into the desert. They bought into a narrative about their generation that they were a certain way and they never let it go as God did miracle after miracle to get their attention and save them, they would not let go. We should just go back to Egypt. We're just slaves. We're not good for anything. They believed they were slaves, and so they lived like slaves. And with God beckoning them to freedom again and again and carving out this promised land for them, they couldn't see it. This is for the young people. If you're at home and you're on the couch and your millennial or your Gen Z kid is on their phone, get their attention. This is for the young people right now, okay? Young people. You have been lied to about your generation. What do you believe about who you are because of when you were born? What do you believe about yourself because you're in Gen Z or because you're a millennial? What do they tell you about people born after 2000 and what they're like? What do you believe about yourself? What narratives are you buying into about your generation? I graduated college in 2016 and I immediately moved back in with mom and dad. A lot of people have done this. If you're listening, you're in that situation, give me a call, we can talk about it. It's tough, I was there. I was not resilient. I wasn't in the trenches with Ernst Younger during World War I. He was about college age when he was doing all that. I wasn't there and when I got done, I didn't have any resilience. I didn't know yet that resilience takes a lifetime and I hadn't spent any time starting to build it while I was young. I believe the narrative about my generation that young people are lazy and helpless and nobody should expect anything from you until you're 35. And when God said, I need to raise up a generation of warriors to take the promised land, I said, that sounds kind of hard. I'd actually rather go back to Egypt if it's all the same with you. See, I didn't know yet that resilience takes a lifetime. And if you don't either, now is the time to learn. I didn't know yet that you don't have to buy into the narrative about your generation. 
That if you were raised with a slave mentality, you can still grow up and be a warrior if you put in the work, if you cultivate resilience, if you learn how to be a fighter, not a victim. So, as promised, our first lesson for the day is for the young people. And that's this. Resilience takes a lifetime, and you have to start building it now. Your life isn't going to get easier. You're going to collect more and more responsibilities and obligations as you get older. Your parents are right about that part. And you've been lied to by the culture your whole life, that you're weak, that you're entitled, that you're helpless. That doesn't have to be true. Even if that's true of most American millennials, it's not true of children of God. And if that's what you are, you are not weak. You are strong. Because you bear the image and the spirit of the creator of the universe. You're you're not responsible for what happens to you. You're not responsible for the world that you inherit, but you are responsible for how you react to that. And so, young people, we have to work harder to speak out against this narrative of our generation, that we're all lazy, that we're not good for anything yet. Some of us are trying to get away to Neverland by going back and living with our parents, by regressing to childhood, by living in the basement. Some of us are trying to get to Neverland by running away and being a global gallivanting world traveler and reenacting eat, pray, love and never putting down roots anywhere. But it's the same problem on both sides. We don't know how to commit to something. We don't know how to grow up and take responsibility. We're not resilient, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can start building that now. It takes an entire lifetime and you can start now and you're gonna need it. Look what Joshua and Caleb did in our story so far. Take a look at how Joshua and Caleb reacted. Every single other spy who came back, all 10 of them said, there's no way. They said, we saw those guys. They are huge. We're gonna lose. Let's go back. And Joshua and Caleb stood up and said, no. They were the only ones. They said, let's trust God. He's got us through everything before. He can do this. Let's go for it. Which voice are you in your generation? Which voice are you in your friend group? Which image of your generation are you affirming through in person and online? What does it look like for you to speak out in your generation like Joshua and Caleb did in theirs? How could you be that voice to paint a new narrative for young people? We can fight back against this narrative. We have to. We're inheriting the world and we're not ready for it because we're not resilient, but it doesn't have to be that way. We need to be like Joshua and Caleb. We need to speak up and say, no, God has taken us this far and he will continue to guide us. You know, this problem is no joke. I mean, God said he needed an entire new generation to take the land, right? This generation, he didn't say, I need to take you out in the desert and train you to be resilient. He said, I need to take you out in the desert and wait until you all die so that a new generation can grow up who's only ever tasted manna, who's never tasted the Egyptian food, who's only lived off of me, a hard people who grew up the hard way in the desert because only they could be the warriors I need to take this land. God is looking for leaders today in the millennials. God is looking for leaders today in Gen Z. He's got a generation in America who is abdicating responsibility, who is regressing into childhood. He's looking for leaders, and we can be those leaders if we follow this example from Joshua and from Caleb. That's the Christian story. That's what we do. We're not victims of our generation or of what they say about us. We can be resilient. So that's the message we have for young people in this story is that resilience takes a lifetime and you can start building it now. The second message for this story comes from the second half of the story. See, this isn't the last time we see Joshua and Caleb. They show back up. After 40 years of wandering around in the desert, the Israelites circle back 
The whole generation is dead. The only two people alive are Joshua and Caleb, who were there the first time, and they get back to the promised land for round two to see if maybe this time the people have what it takes to carry out God's plan. The story picks up in Joshua 14, if you're following along. In Joshua 14, this is where we'll find our second takeaway for the older people. They get to the promised land, and God has appointed Joshua to lead the entire military campaign to conquer this land, and Caleb is still there too. And just like when he was younger, when he gave his report, he's still standing up, he's still speaking out, he's still a leader. Now listen to what he says, starting in verse 7. Caleb stands up and says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites, who went up with me, made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. He was 85 years old. Resilience takes a lifetime. Now, talking to the older people in the room, some of you have had a lifetime. Some of you have been alive long enough to have gone through the necessary life situations to develop this trait of resilience. You've survived incredible hardship that younger people can't imagine yet before they go through it themselves. And you need to pass on what you've learned because we need your help. This new generation showed up at the promised land. They didn't know the drill. They didn't know what they were doing and who steps out to lead them. It's this 85-year-old man who says, I've been here before. I know the drill. We can take these guys. We can go in here and take this land because God's got our back. He stood up to lead the charge. Now, let me be clear before we move into this part because I want to be as sensitive as I can when I'm talking about this issue. I need to take my own lesson as a millennial and be confident in speaking the truth of God, but at the same time, I want to be respectful because I'm talking to older people who are way wiser than I am, who've been following God longer than I've been alive. I want to be clear about my word choice here when I keep saying old people. <laughs> I've been trying to use a respectful word, older people, because it's relative. It doesn't make you sound old. It's just you're older, you know, but um, let's be honest with what we're talking about here. I just want to say this going into this second discussion. It is not a bad thing to be old, period. Old, the word old is not an insult. It's a fact, it's just a thing about you, how old you are. All of us are getting old at the same rate, 60 seconds a minute, 60 minutes an hour. We're all going to do it, we're all gonna get old. It's a fact about who you are and we can't live in denial of that. The world hates the idea that it's getting old because the world is afraid of death and getting old, age is just a reminder that you're gonna die, but we're Christians. We're not afraid of death. And so there's no reason for us to be afraid or in denial about the fact that we're aging. And if we do, it leaves us susceptible to some really scary things. If you get old and you're in denial of that stage of life, you're gonna miss out on opportunities unique to being old. If you get old and you're in denial of that stage of life and that you're getting old, you're gonna miss out on responsibilities that are unique to old people. Pretending that you can stay young forever, all right, talking to the old people, pretending you can stay young, you're buying into the same Peter Pan delusion as the young people. 
You're denying God's reality that he's put us in, and Christians have to affirm reality. You can't fly off to Neverland. You're getting old. It's okay. A mentor of mine, the preacher Justin Gerhardt at Round Rock Church of Christ, he preached a sermon on this topic, and he said it this way. It stuck with me. He said, every age carries its own strengths and its own weaknesses. God assembles humanity into this ever-changing, constantly varied matrix of age. And so we're forced into existence with non-peers. He says, God designs communities on purpose, like a song that goes in a never-ending round, with voices jumping in, voices fading out, and staggering turns. And he did it on purpose. Not so that we could exasperate and annoy each other or get frustrated when young people and old people try to relate because different stages have different strengths and different weaknesses and we can work together. That's what the people of God do. So I know at home, in here everybody was pretty measured earlier when I was talking to the kids, but at home some of the parents I'm sure were jumping off the couch pointing at the kid like, amen, Peter Pan, you need to grow up. Okay, this part's for you. Now we're talking to you. About a third of Americans today are between 55 and 72. There's almost 80 million people in this country that we call baby boomers. And I've been using generational labels. It doesn't really matter, but uh, you know where you are. You know who you are, okay? You know how old you are. Did you hear in this story how old Caleb was? He was 85. And you go, well, that's back then. No, he was 85. 85 is 85. He was 85. If you look back in the Hebrew and figure out what that word is, it means 85. He was old. He was really old, and he'd been through it all before. He'd already been to the promised land and he had the right answer and 10 guys had the wrong answer and he had to suffer for their mistake and waste 40 years of his life walking around in the desert for no good reason. And is he bitter? Did he quit? No, he's leading the charge the second time around. He's rallying the young people. He's saying, all right, kids, I know the plan. Let's go. I'm 85. I feel just as good as I did when I was 40. I'm ready to go. Who's with me? Baby boomers, we need you. Most of you, most old people, have more money than you've ever had before. You have more margin in your life than you've ever had before. But all of you have more experience in your life than you've ever had before. And look, you're getting old. You've earned a break. Take a break. I mean, I know how hard it was. You had to raise the millennials. I'm not downplaying that. I'm sure that was hard. Nothing wrong with taking a break. Take a vacation. Go on a cruise. But this is not the time to sit on the porch and check out. We need you. If you're not careful with the time you've got left, you're going to waste all the resilience that you've been building up your whole life. If you're not careful with the time you've got left, you're going to waste all that hardship that you have suffered through that has earned you so much resilience and wisdom that we need. If you're not careful when you get older, you're going to start thinking, I've done my time, you know, I've run my race. I deserve to go on trips. I want to treat myself, the, you know, hand this crazy world off to the kids. Like, I don't understand the problems these days. The kids know what's going on. Like, let's let them handle it. I've done my time. I'm checking out. I'm going on a cruise. Nothing wrong with cruises. But do you realize that the reason the kids are so lost these days is because they need your help? I went through four years of college. I, a lot of people I've talked to have shared this experience. I went through four years of college without ever building one single honest, meaningful relationship with an adult. I wasn't trying to dodge them. They just weren't there. I wasn't trying to avoid. I went through college and I pretty much never had a single meaningful conversation with an adult. You're just surrounded in your own bubble with the people around you and they're not seeking out adult wisdom. We need to seek them out because they need our help. If we're gonna blame them for all of society's problems, what are we doing to help? Now's not the time to check out. Now's the time to go all in. 
Now's the time to take those risks and make those moves. If you've had a hard life getting here, good. Resilience takes a lifetime. You've done it. We need to know what you know. We need to learn what you've learned. I think about it this way. I think a lot of older people have slipped into what I call grandparent mode. Now, let me explain what I mean by grandparent mode. What's the best thing about being a grandparent? All the fun and none of the mess, right? They hand you the baby, you get to play with it, and then when the diaper starts to smell or it starts to cry, hey, mom, hey, dad, and you get to hand it right back, right? All the fun, none of the mess. Nothing wrong with that. You've earned it, right? You did your time. Now you, that's fine. But I think a lot of older people are going into grandparent mode with society. All the fun, none of the mess. It's nice to live in the 2020s, right? I know all of you are on Facebook now. Right? Everybody's got a, an iPhone. Welcome to the party. We're in the 2020s. We're going to Mars. We've got nice cars. We've got nice medicine. Things are good. But when it comes to the crazy parts of the 2020s, the cultural insanity that we're dealing with, a lot of old people are in grandparent mode. Hand that off to the kids. Uh, that's not my problem. You know, the kids can figure all that out. This is messy. I don't even understand what these kids are struggling with. This is their world now. You know, Caleb, he could have gone into grandparent mode, right? None of us would have blamed him for that, would we? He did his time. He gave the good report after he spied out the land. He kind of said, you know what? I'm not going to live long enough to enjoy the promised land. I'm 85. I'm going to die soon. I got you here. Y'all go take the promised land. I'll be on my porch, right? If you need help, come ask me for it. That's not what he did, is it? He was rallying them. He was the one leading the charge. He was the one in the front saying, let's go. And he was 85. He could have checked out, but he didn't. You know, the right way to be a grandparent the best way is to invest in their world, to invest in their life, to figure out what kind of weird problems they're dealing with that you don't understand so you can apply your wisdom, you can apply your resilience and help them. We can't afford to let all that go to waste. In a church like this, we have such a resource of intergenerationality. We can't afford to waste that. God has given us such an incredible gift by forcing us into community with people who are a different age. And the world is doing everything it can to wedge apart these generations with headlines like we were looking at before, by coming after millennials or coming after baby boomers, trying to split generations apart and start a war, by trying to insulate us from learning from the other side. And that's not what the kingdom of God is about. It's about bringing people together. It's about having Joshua and Caleb speak up in their lost generation and say, no, we can do this. And it's about having them speak up again 45 years later and saying, we've learned in the desert. We know that we can do this, and we will be out front leading the kids in this charge. The kingdom of God is not living in the past. It's not about going back to your parents' basement. It's not about going back to the good old days. We're looking to the future. We're looking to build something, something that will last, families that will last, marriages that will last, a church that will last into the future. So we can't afford to be checking out and we can't afford to not commit until we're 35. It's time for us to double down and work together to be resilient as an intergenerational church where young people learn from old people, where old people help young people. Because resilience takes a lifetime. We can't develop it overnight, but we can help each other develop it over decades. This is a ministry, this is a witness that we can show the hurting world around us how to live like the kingdom of God together. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this collection of people that you've brought together, that you've made us all family. Help us to see the best in each other, 
to assume the best in each other, for young people to learn from old people, for old people to help young people. Help us not to waste this incredible gift that you've given us. God, over our lifetimes, we want to build resilience so we can further your kingdom. Teach us that lesson every day through each other. In Jesus' name, amen.